Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, what's the latest in Canadian politics? Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the Director of School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University, will join us to talk about that. The pain at the pump continues as gas prices reach record levels on Saturday. Just how much more can Canadians take? And the U.S. Government Committee investigating last January 6th riot in the Capitol will hear from more witnesses today. What can we expect? Well, we'll talk about that. All coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with, well, as I mentioned, big news out of Ottawa. We've got the leadership point of the Conservative Party, of course. But more importantly, we've been talking about the last couple of weeks now, but the, the jam is happening at the airports, Canadian airports all over the place. And uh, one of the main points of contention, of course, was the screening that had to happen, uh, the mandatory random COVID-19 screening. Well, as uh, Karen Rebo reports, the federal government has decided to pause all mandatory random COVID-19 testing at airports, and that should be good news to travelers. The pause will be in place until the end of the month. After that, mandatory rapid tests for incoming travelers will happen in the community. For now, unvaccinated travelers will still be tested at airports. The government had previously said current public health measures would remain in place until the end of June, but it is facing mounting pressure to solve hours-long lineups, delayed flights, missed connections, and other problems playing out in Canada's airports as travel has picked back up. The change happens at the same time the U.S is abandoning negative COVID tests as a requirement for entry. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press. Always good news if you can get some kind of relief, I guess, from some of the problems that are being caused these days. To talk about this and, and lots more happening in Ottawa, uh, pleased to welcome Dr. Laurie Turnbull. Uh, Dr. Turnbull, of course, is the Director of the School of Public Administration with Dalhousie University. Uh, Laurie, I hope you had a great weekend. Thanks for being with us today. Bill, I did have a great weekend. I hope you did too. Oh, by the way, just off topic, I just want to throw this out to you. Uh, we had the story late last week, and of course it was kind of hanging around the weekend about a, a security threat on Parliament Hill, uh, and, and just seemed to drop off the radar all of a sudden. Have you heard anything about that, what was going on? I mean, apparently I was told police were buzzing all over the place, but they didn't really want to tell us much about what was happening. Yeah, um, I think in the end it was sort of much ado about nothing. I think the there was a like kind of a, a call around there being a threat and that turned out not to be the case. And so I think all in all things ended up being fine and nobody was hurt or anything. But it was interesting to see how quick the response was and how, you know, like I heard a few, you know, people who are experts in security talking about how quickly the police and were responding and how, and you know what the ease of the response right and that being kind of compared against what happened with the trucker convoy in back yeah. in january and february yeah that's the, the juxtaposition of those two incidents i guess was very telling for an awful lot of us anyway happy ending i guess anyway, that's that's the good news about this uh the uh, decision made finally uh to uh and, and they say put a pause, not to end uh, the COVID-19 testing that's going on at airports. I don't think that's going to end all of the log jams that are going on because there's a lot more happening or not happening, I guess, at the airports. But it, it does, I guess, speak, Laurie, to the pressure that the federal government is on now to do something about uh, the repercussions of, of COVID. Oh, I think so. And I think it was always going to be tough to figure out exactly when and how was the right moment and the right way to be peeling away some of these restrictions and some of the requirements that we had because of COVID-19. And so at what point, you know, are enough people vaccinated and we're, we're kind of, there's a sense of a comfort level where you can start to not do the sorts of things that we had been used to doing. And so I think for the federal government, yeah, there was a lot of pressure on them and definitely, um, 
not just because of the pressure that was coming from the conservatives, but also, you know, according to reports, even within the Liberal caucus itself, there was pressure on the prime minister to make changes so that the, you know, access to airports and that whole experience would be much easier. And also because the U.S. had relaxed their testing requirements as well, then there's an even greater pressure for the federal government here to say, well, why are you still doing this? And experts, scientific experts, health experts were saying, you know, this is a very limited value at this point, right? And when you think about it, when we're all do able to do almost all of what we do without having to show any proof of vaccine, it starts to beg the question around why you have to do the negative tests and, and things like that at the border, because presumably we might all be coming into contact with somebody who has COVID. And we're just, if we're managing that in every other environment in life, well, then why would the airport be different? Which leads to the next question, I guess. Uh, I don't fly that much, Larry, but I drive a lot. And uh, uh, there's a lot of pressure on the government, especially right now from both opposition parties, uh, to do something about the price of gasoline. And, and you know, and mind you, they have different solutions to this. Uh, the NDP just want to tax the rich for it, which is, I guess, their answer to a lot of stuff these days. But, and the, but the Conservatives are simply saying, look, at least temporarily remove the gas tax, the federal tax on gasoline. Uh, which would drop at, I think, about 20 cents per liter, which is a significant drop. Uh, since they've they've acquiesced on the airport situation, is there any discussion at all that they may do something about the price of gas as well? I think you make an excellent point around the fact that lots, I mean, especially when we go into the summer, the road trip in Canada is a very popular way to spend at least part yeah. of the summer, right? And so when people are thinking about whether they're going to do their typical uh, summer vacation with their family, and, you know, drive around and see some friends and things like that. I mean, it's going to have major implications if a lot of people do the calculations and say, this is just not affordable, like this isn't worth it. And so it, I think there's a lot of pressure on the federal government and on provincial governments too, to demonstrate some awareness and empathy around what's happening to people on a day-to-day -day basis and how people are affording things. And so that was something that the federal budget was criticized for. And you and I talked about that there was, you know, measures that are going to take a while to make, have any difference in terms of your bottom line. There's not anything that's going to make life easier for you today. And so our government's going to be able to show some awareness and some acknowledgement of the fact that the cost of gas is having a major impact on how people are living their lives every day and whether or not you're able to, you know, make it all work out by the end of the month kind of thing. And so I, I don't know what to expect in terms of what decisions they're going to make, but there is an awful lot of pressure to, to do something and to show. And I mean, now we're kind of in the home stretch of parliament where we're in that June period where they're going to try to get everything done over the next few weeks. So we'll see uh, what, what kind of questions they get in the days and weeks ahead. Well, especially because you see what's happening here, well, in Ontario, for instance, and I know other provinces have tried to do uh, some things of this ilk too, and that's to offer, you know, bonuses, et cetera, to stay here, to, you know, staycation, you know, vacation in Ontario, stay here, because the economy really needs it. Well, nobody can afford to go anywhere right now. I mean, you know, it's, it's going to be backyard barbecues for holidays for most people, unless they can find some sort of relief here. So there's an economic impact in this as well. Oh, Absolutely. Because if people are, again, you know, doing that math and saying, like, I can't do the sort of staycation that still requires quite a bit of driving around, even in my home province of Nova Scotia, like, you can still go through quite a bit of gas, like, just kind of going around and, and doing the things that you like to do. And so if people start thinking, this is not really affordable like it was before then all of those other things that you would have done, like the you know bed and breakfast you would have stayed at, all the places you would have gone, that those businesses are going to get hit too. And so there's definitely, like... Now that we're through that really intense COVID period where lockdowns and shutdowns and there was so much devastation to the business community, we have gotten through that 
And now it's like, wow, <laughs> like this is the thing that hits, hits it on the way out. Like now gas is so expensive that we're still seeing this devastation to the business community. And so I think there's, as you say, going to be a whole lot of pressure on governments to do something for the summer months so that we can, we can actually enjoy some of the things that we've been, we've been planning on for a while. All right, let's, uh, if we can, segue over to the soap opera, which is called the conservative leadership race. Uh, it's uh, getting crazier and crazier right now because, of course, the, the the whole thing about selling memberships is over now. But now the counting begins. Uh, and I didn't know that they could even find that as controversial, but they have. Uh, Patrick Brown and Jean Charest saying Pierre Pauliev is actually inflating the numbers. Uh, as a matter of fact, Charest says it doesn't make much difference. You know, how many, whether it's 10,000 or a million people you've signed up, you're only going to get the same number of, of, of votes and points when these sorts of things actually roll out. Uh, there's a there's a lot of finger point going on here, and you know, there's, it, it doesn't really look like a unified party at this stage, does it? Not at all. And I mean, it didn't before either. But now that they've got all the memberships sold that they can sell, we're going to go through this period where, you know, we've got this window between the cutoff for the membership sales and the when the party can actually confirm how many people have been signed up and how many are members of the party because now they're doing as you say the verification and so it's a it's a period of time where the candidates can kind of throw a bit of shade at one another and cast doubt about whether their numbers that they're reporting are actually accurate but yes i mean as sure says this is a point system and as long as a riding has 100 members it's worth 100 points no more than that and so if pierre polly signs thousands and thousands of people up and you know whatever riding it is it's still only worth 100 points and so it's hard to think about that from the point system perspective right like if we if this was a referendum if this was a first past the post thing that would be a different thing there there would be far more clarity around the the you know the the extent to which polyev is way farther ahead than everybody else and i mean clearly he's still a front runner but the point system makes it harder to determine whether that's really going to be something that gives him an opportunity to win on the first ballot that's still a really tough thing to fathom at this point. So Polyev is coming out swinging, saying, I've signed up tons and tons of people. And so basically making it, try, you know, try to look like a foregone conclusion. Whereas other candidates are saying, no, like A, there's a point system and B, we don't really believe his numbers anyway. And so, yeah, clearly we're still in a period where the, the candidates aren't very interested in getting along. Uh, and Patrick Brown, of course, you saw him on the Sunday morning talk shows uh, this past weekend, essentially saying, I don't want to be a member of a party that wants Pierre Polyev as their leader. In other words, if Polyev wins this thing, he says he's not going to run uh, in the, whatever the next federal election is going to be, uh, which I think really just kind of underscores the big divide between, uh, well, not just he and, and Polyev, but of course, uh, you throw Sheree into there too and a number of the other candidates. Uh, they all seem to represent different phases of the party. There's not a whole lot of unity going on here, but a lot of uh, finger pointing. I can remember in different leadership contests across the country, it's not uncommon for a candidate to get a question like, if you don't win, will you still run? And usually that's a question about the candidate's loyalty to the whole enterprise, as opposed to like, the question is really like, are you just running to be the leader? And if you don't get the top job, you're just going to take off. Do you really, you know, are you really committed to this project overall? Whereas I think now the question isn't quite that. The question is about, can you actually align yourself with any of the other candidates who might win? And in this case, it exposes a significant amount of distance between the different candidates and the fact that they don't agree on much actually. And one is not going to want to put their name on a banner for the other. And now that we have such incredible focus on leadership in politics, and there's such a kind of overlap between the, the leader's identity and the party brand, 
that you really like it's I think it's harder now for candidates and and MPs to be in a party where they don't totally see themselves as being aligned with the leader because parties tend to remake themselves now when leadership changes. And so it's a big ask of someone to say, you know, you're going to stand on the ballot with someone as opposed to with the party. Like, I think the leader's brand is almost overtaking the party's brand. Well, and which uh, I guess follows through because, I mean, all political parties right now seem to have fallen into this, uh, you know, one shot at it or you either win or you're out. Uh, when it comes to leadership, uh, you know, Stefan Leon and Michael Ignatieff could tell you about that. Uh, but so could Tom Mulcair and a bunch of other people. And, well, Andrew Scheer, uh, Aaron O'Toole, the list goes on and on and on. Yeah. The old days, uh, long before your time, of course, Laurie, but in the old days, I mean, the opposition leader or the leader of the party hung around for a few years and maybe got two or three kicks at the can. Uh, they don't have that uh, luxury anymore. You either win the first time or you're out of there. Well, yeah, and I mean, like, there are definitely parties that aren't necessarily thinking they're going to win the next election. And so maybe the expectations of that leader would be different. We've seen Jigmeet Singh go through a couple of elections and, you know, he still kind of is in the leader's position, lives to fight another day, that kind of thing, whereas other people get the one and done treatment. But I think, you know, there's a couple of things going on. Yes, people are less patient. People want the leader to win. And if it's like, you don't win, okay, next. What else are we doing? But it also indicates, I think, something more deep about the parties themselves and the transactionalism that has become normal in political parties now. I mean, not that they weren't always interested in winning, obviously, right? That's the big point of a political party. But now it seems like there is a transactionalism in the leadership, the membership, it's like we are here to win. We are here to field candidates and move something forward. It's not about the ideological or principle-based, you know, vision-based purpose of the party. It's very much about winning. And so if we don't do that, well, then clearly we've got to rip this down to the studs and start again. And so that means that the leader is the be-all and end-all while they are in that position. But then, you know, you get dropped like a stone if you lose. Yeah, and that's the, the political reality, not just federally, provincially as well. You look at what just happened here with uh, Stephen Del Duca here in Ontario. Uh, it's it's uh, well, we already knew it was a blood sport, but it's it's really ramped up the intensity, I guess, over the last little while. Anyway, it's an interesting story to follow. Uh, Laurie, thanks as always for this. I really do appreciate the time, and uh, have a great week. And we'll talk again soon. You have a great week too. Take care, yes. Dr. Laurie Turnbull from uh, Dalhousie University, with a quick wraparound of what's happening on uh, Canadian politics. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. If you tried to drive anywhere this past weekend, you're just as upset as I am about the price of gasoline. And there's so much crazy things going on here, global markets, etc. And uh, the gas prices uh, and is, is not going to go away. The crisis apparently is here for the long haul. That's what we're being told anyway. Gas industry analyst Rory Johnston says the pressure for a lack of refinery capacity is one of the key underlying problems. Now we're in a situation where you just really don't have enough refining capacity in North America and no one's going to be building any new refineries anytime soon either because there hasn't been a new refining complex in North America since the 1970s. So I think that is the the kind of the thing you need to keep in your back of your mind that there really isn't a quick fix at the end of this. Uh, okay, so it's refining. I, yeah, that's one example. I mean, is it the war in Ukraine that's doing some of this? I mean, I'm hearing things about sweet crude and sour crude and on and on it goes, and it's just making your head spin. All you know is that every time you go to fill up the gas tank, it's costing you an arm and a leg. To add some clarity to this, let's bring Marvin Ryder into the discussion. Marvin, of course, is a professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Uh, Marvin, pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks for joining us today. Glad to be with you this morning, Bill. 75 bucks it cost me, uh, and that was about half a tank. 
uh, which is just insane. You know, I, uh, in the old days, I always used to see these quick gas guzzlers pulling up there and they go, oh, those poor rascals. And now we're all in the same boat uh, when it comes to the price. And what, what is happening here is, uh, you know, because there's pressure on the governments now to relieve us, you know, say that, you know, take some of the tax off the price of this, et cetera. But is this really just a supply and demand issue? Well, it is part of that. So uh, let me let me just uh, take you back a little bit to all of this. At Christmas time of 2021, so not quite six months ago, uh, oil was trading at $60 a barrel, and now it's trading at $120 a barrel. So the price has doubled on the world market, and that's got to influence gas prices. Why has the price of oil gone up? Well, the, the biggest uh, issue that's driving oil prices now has nothing to do with COVID. It has everything to do with the war in Ukraine. Now, why is that? In terms of the world's major producers of oil, number one is the United States. Number two is Saudi Arabia, but number three is Russia. And what's happened is the world has wanted to teach Russia a lesson for invading Ukraine. So the world is saying, we're not going to buy Russian products. So suddenly the world doesn't want to buy Russian oil, but then we're going to have to replace that. We're not going to give up gasoline and things like that. So now the world, not necessarily Canada, the United States, but the world has been turning to other sources. They've been driving up demand for a fixed supply of oil, and that's what sends the prices soaring. One of the people who could supply that oil is a nice group of people called OPEC, which is a price-setting cartel. Uh, they uh, kind of like the price of oil at $120 a barrel, and they're not interested in, in increasing the supply by turning up their taps and releasing more oil. Now, Canada and the United States, Canada is number five on that list of major oil producing nations. Both Canada and the United States have responded by saying we want to uh, increase the supply, the domestic supply, put more oil into the market. And again, if you increase the supply, you should help drive the price down. Joe Biden has taken it a step further. Now, this is not something we have in Canada, but uh, in the United States, started during the Second World War, expanded in the early 1970s for uh, strategic purposes. The United States keeps a stockpile of oil. They have it in special facilities in parts of the United States. And uh, Joe Biden has agreed to release 180 million barrels of oil from their strategic reserve over the next six months. You do the math, that works out to roughly 1 million barrels a day. And he's doing this in the hopes of bringing the price of oil down. If I bring the price of oil down, then the price of gasoline should fall. Uh, that strategic release of oil has not quite yet begun. It is just beginning as we speak. So it'll be interesting as we go forward over the summer to see if he's successful at bringing the price down. Uh, I, I'm not one of those people who believe that oil is going to get, or excuse me, gasoline is going to get to $5 a liter. I don't see that anytime soon. Uh, but I also don't see a lot of pressure to bring it down uh, because we're still struggling as the world, still struggling to replace that Soviet or Russian supply of oil. And uh, it's, it's very hard to do. A couple of other things. And I just mentioned that, uh at the beginning here, but sweet crude, sour crude, things of this yep. nature. What, what, what's the difference there, Marvin? Okay, so <laughs> what we call sweet light crude is oil that is very easy to refine and has a minimum of impurities. The biggest impurity being sulfur. Sulfur is a problem in the petroleum. They don't want it. And so if I can get sweet light crude, it means it has very low levels of sulfur. And that tends to be the oil that is produced in Saudi Arabia, 
in certain parts of Texas, and even in certain parts of Alberta. However, Alberta also produces sour crude. Why is it sour? It has high amounts of sulfur in it. And this is, tends to be the oil that comes from the oil sands. Now, a moment ago, Bill, I said that both Canada and the United States wanted to produce more oil. Well, that's great if you can produce it, but then you have to get it to market. And so a problem that Canadian uh, producers were having was transporting the oil from Alberta to other markets, whether that's markets in the east of Canada or south into the United States. Uh, you are probably aware that uh, uh, our good friends, uh, uh, TransCanada Pipeline, etc., Enbridge, had been increasing the capacity of their pipelines. And there was some controversy around that. You might remember Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of, of Michigan. Mm -hmm. She was kind of against some of this. But the good news is some of this pipeline expansion has now happened. And if we produce more oil in Alberta, we can also distribute that oil to centers and sell it. The bad news is for the Alberta producers, they are finally getting their oil to market at the same time that Joe Biden wants to bring the price down by re releasing all these extra supplies. Just add a little more fuel to that fire. You might remember another controversy in Canada, something called the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which could take oil from Alberta down to roughly the Vancouver and Seattle area. Uh, they had wanted to expand their capacity. Of course, they ran into problems. The Canadian government actually bought that pipeline and then began a project to double its capacity. It's disappeared from the headlines, Bill, but that pipeline is going to be completed next year in 2023, and that's going to allow us to export another 600,000 barrels of oil a day. Again, great news that is happening. We can now take what we produce, get it to market. We increase what we produce, get it to market. But the downside of that is we're also going to help to bring the price of oil down over time. Great news for you and I at the pumps, not so good for the companies that produce the oil. All right, let's talk about pipelines because there's no controversy there at all. We can just slide right through this. Uh, you've yes. got uh, Governor Whitmer in Michigan, of course, with the Line 5 situation. And, and we've had representatives on the program on both sides of this issue, of course, and there's an environmental concern. We get that. And, and as you've told us in the past, even if they say, okay, fine, uh, we're going to block this, uh, that oil still has to get to market. Whether it's going to be you know, by rail or by truck or something, it's still going to get there one way or another. The pipeline is such a controversial piece. I mean, I could throw one other at you here, too. Of course, there was the one that was supposed to go from Alberta all the way up to the to the uh, maritime provinces. But uh, uh, the, the mayor of Montreal and a couple of other politicians put the blocks on that, and that didn't happen. Uh, so it, it just seems as if pipelines should be part of the solution, but they're not very popular these days. Yeah, let me come at that a couple of ways, Bill. First, people should know that we actually have lots of pipelines. Canada actually is home to 700,000 kilometers worth of pipelines. So we've already built a lot of capacity that's there. But uh, two pipelines have gotten a lot of headlines. One was, that was called the Energy East Pipeline, designed yeah. to take Alberta oil all the way to the Maritimes. And yes, it was Quebec who stepped up and said, not so fast, buddies. We don't want that going through our land. And then there was also something, you may have vaguely heard about a bill called Keystone XL. It was oh, a yes. pipeline that was not a favorite of Obama, then Trump came in and he restarted it, and then Biden came in and he canceled it. That was to take Canadian oil south. And you're right, uh, if you don't uh, build these pipelines, some of that oil is still going to get to market via train cars. Today in North America, there are 500,000 train cars every day transmitting oil around. And of course, you remember the story in Lac-Megantic. Now, 
one of the reasons why you get two different opinions on this is sort of the short-term benefit of pipelines and the longer-term benefit of pipelines. Short-term, we're seeing these huge gas prices. We're seeing these huge oil prices. Come on, let's get more oil in the market and bring those down and give consumers a break. And that short-term thinking, unfortunately, it takes two or three or four years to build a pipeline. So that if we even if we started more, it's not going to affect it now. It'll be a little longer. But then we're faced with the fact that in 2030, and so I, I hate to say this to people, scare them, but that's just eight years from now, uh, most of the major car companies in the world are saying that they're only going to sell electric vehicles. We're still going to need gasoline or diesel for big dump trucks and road graders and, and sort of the heavy duty things, but cars and light duty trucks, pickup trucks, will be switching over to electricity. Uh, and so we're still going to need oil even after 2030. Uh, for instance, flying planes, we don't have good electric planes, we're probably going to use them for ships because we don't have a good alternative there. And we still use uh, petroleum products and making all kinds of things, most notably plastics. And most of our homes have plastics in various forms. So we're still going to need this, but we're just not going to need the same volume. So if I build a pipeline, this is like basic infrastructure that you've got to plan on recovering your investment over 25 to 30 years. We know you can recover that investment for the next eight years, but then what? And so pipelines in the longer term probably don't make a lot of sense to build. Uh, and this is I hate to say it, this is also why train cars look like a nice stopgap measure for five, six, eight years until we see where we're going. So I do get both sides of the argument. The bottom line, though, to relieve the pressure at the pumps is we need to increase the supply. World demand isn't changing that much, but it's the supply that has gone down. When we eliminated the number three producer of oil in the world from the buying pool, it reduced the volume dramatically. So whatever we can do to get the supply will, over time, help to bring these prices back down to something more manageable. Uh, which begs the question, of course, by 2030, uh, is there going to be a reevaluation of that? Uh, you know, that's all based on the premise that we're all going to, as consumers, buy into this and say, sure, I'll get a, an EV next time around. But for a lot of people, especially these days, it's not affordable. Uh, so is there still going to be a market and a desire to still have at least hybrids? Uh, right. at some point. So, you know, that's, that, that, that's to me, kind of a pie-in-the-sky thing that uh, everybody's preaching about right now, but I'm, I'm a little skeptical. I hope they're right, but I'm not so sure that they will be. Well, you have every right to be skeptical, Bill. Uh, in our life, we've seen new technologies that have taken a long time to be adopted. So a great example of that is the microwave. That was actually, microwave ovens were invented in the 1950s, but it took to the 1980s before consumers started taking to them. On the other hand, you've seen the opposite when we introduced compact discs in a year and a half, they replaced vinyl as the sound choice for most people who had record collections. So new technologies can change. Now, you're also right that today electric vehicles are pricey, but that's also because they only represent about 1% of vehicle sales. If all the major car companies in the world are moving this way, we're going to start to see what is called an economy of scale. As as we buy more, they become cheaper to produce because you can produce them in longer runs and what have you. We've heard, um, not yet seen, but heard that the big three automakers, at least in Ontario, are investing, I believe the total now is getting close to $4 billion in retooling plants to, to move them towards electricity. Uh, we're seeing the Stellantis, which is the Chrysler Fiat hybrid. They're getting into uh, building batteries in the Windsor area. So they're setting the groundwork, but you're correct. Will consumers respond? We're, we're just not sure. 
I can say those pioneers who've gone first or innovators who've gone first and acquired a Tesla uh, love them. They absolutely love them. And what they specifically love is the fact that they now have a gas station at home because they can plug the car in when they need to and they don't need to do it every night. It's just like a gas car. You fill your tank. You don't need to fill it every day. You can wait. Well, you fill your tank with electrons. It'll get you a week or so, and then you can charge it. But you can charge overnight when electricity prices are low. And again, there's great news here, at least in Ontario. We have lots and lots of room in our electricity grid to see people switch over. So the grid is not going to be a problem when this happens. But will it happen? No one knows for sure. It's just that when the car companies themselves say, this isn't the government, but it's the car companies who produce the vehicles say, by 2030, we're not going to produce gas-powered vehicles. Consumers may not have any choice of what they want to do. Uh, anyway, we'll cross that bridge. By the way, Ontario is the only jurisdiction, as I understand, in Canada that doesn't offer rebates for people to buy these, uh, which is why we're lagging behind every other province when it comes to uh, you know, electric car sales. But i got a, a couple of minutes left here, Marvin. If I could, I want to circle back to your uh, comments about the oil and, and gas thing. One of the, the comments I've also heard here is about refining. Uh, you know, We're not refining enough of this. We used to have enough refineries in North America. What's happened to, to get us to this point? Well, actually, again, I think the, the general good news is we haven't lost any refining capacity. So your the clip you played at the start of our interview, uh, what he's talking about is that from time to time, a refinery has to shut down to do maintenance. And they try to time these shutdowns at a time that you don't um, necessarily need lots and lots of gasoline. So when our gasoline consumption is down a bit, that's a good time to do your uh, retrofit work or maintenance work at the refinery. Unfortunately, a couple refineries were hit with emergency repairs and they had to shut down. And so temporarily, there has been a little shortage of gasoline in the marketplace. But when I say temporarily, we're talking about a matter of maybe three weeks to five weeks, something like that. And then they'll come back on stream and it will go away. So I those things happen and they, they sort of happen randomly. And I don't lose a lot of sleep over them. I don't think we need more refining capacity. Maybe it'd be nice if, if businesses had some reserve capacity so that when an emergency hit, they could swing over. But refining, I don't believe that's your problem today. I think your basic problem is the price of world oil crossing $120 a barrel. I, I just don't know how we bring it back down. And Canada doesn't have any of these strategic reserves. The United States is going to try it. I hope Mr. Biden gets this one right and that by by say September we see prices down below two dollars, maybe even approaching a buck and a half. But this has never been tried before releasing this strategic reserve of oil, so we don't quite know what's going to happen. And you've told us in past discussions that uh, there's there's actually a, a summer gasoline and a winter gasoline, I guess, depending on, on the temperature, especially here in North America. And, and they have to switch over, I guess. And now that we're into June, I, has that happened yet? And, and yes. uh, if I recall, you've told us the summer grade is actually more expensive anyway, isn't it? Yeah, and, and this has to do with moisture in the tank. And so they put extra additives in to get the water out and, and the condensation and what have you. Um, and so we've switched over. We're actually in summer gas now. That does tend to you know, be a nickel more a liter or something like that. But it's not driving it. And Bill, I, I'm going to make one other pitch here and say it's also not the carbon tax. I know everyone hates the carbon tax. Today, the carbon tax is 11 cents a liter, but it does not vary by the price of gasoline. It's a fixed amount. If you want to get mad about something, what you should get mad about is HST. That is the 13%, 8% provincial, 5% federal tax. 
which is put on gasoline, and it's put on gasoline after the other taxes, but it's variable. It's 13% of whatever the number is. Both the province and the federal government are making a lot more money now on the HST on gasoline than they did just six months ago. Doug Ford has announced that as of July 1st, he's going to waive five cents a liter. That's in the Ontario fixed duty. Uh, He can do that because of all the extra money he's been getting from the HST. And I have been kind of surprised that Mr. Trudeau hasn't made some announcement. Doesn't have to be quite as rich, but something across Canada, because again, they're getting more money out of the HST. That, if you want to blame a government tax, that's the one you should blame, not the carbon tax because of the fixed amount. And also remember, most of us get the carbon tax back as a rebate. So I pay it today, but I'll get it back every three months. That's not your villain here. All right. So we know who to get angry at now. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Marvin, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this. Really appreciate it. Glad to be with you. You betcha. Take care. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's focus on on what's going on in Washington, D.C. And as we mentioned just a few minutes ago, the uh, hearings into the Capitol riots uh, will continue today. There were some surprises uh, late last week with some of the testimony. But maybe more importantly, uh, given some of the uh, brutal murders that have occurred there in the last little while, uh, U.S. senators and the negotiations for those senators have announced a bipartisan framework responding to last month's massive shootings and the mass shootings in New York and Texas. Uh, nobody really thought this was going to happen anytime soon because there just seems to be this huge divide. But uh, Democratic Senator Richard Blumenthal says that he's optimistic. This common sense bipartisan framework could be a major breakthrough in protecting America's children and families from gun violence. Uh, interesting. And uh, it's not ready to rock and roll and to pass to both houses, but I mean, at least they're talking and that's probably an improvement to some extent anyway. Uh, to talk about this and other goings on in Washington, please to welcome back to the program, Jennifer Johnson. Jennifer, of course, is Washington correspondent for Global News down in the U.S. Capitol. Uh, Jennifer, thanks so much for the time. Great to have you with us today. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me. This is a surprise to me simply because, you know, been there, done that. Uh, thoughts and prayers always go out after these sorts of things. You know, the uh, politicians will make visits to the site and, and give their condolences to the families. But anytime you start saying, okay, now let's pass some legislation, it's full stop, no, not going to happen. What's different, or is anything different this time? Well, I think what's different this time, Bill, is that the American public has taken to the streets as they did this past weekend, hundreds of thousands of Americans protesting, asking for action, asking for sensible gun control laws. Uh, There were protests from coast to coast, and, and people are angry, and they're telling their lawmakers, both Democrats and Republicans, that they're angry and they want to see some kind of gun control legislation. There hasn't been any substantial federal gun control laws passed since 1994. And so and and yet we've had over 250 mass shootings just so far this year. And Americans are scared. They're scared to go to the movie theaters. They're scared to send their kids to school. They're you know, they're scared to go to the grocery stores. And I think that's what's different. People are just fed up. What, if any, impact did uh, Matthew McConaughey's uh, comments from last week have when, when he was at the White House, of course? Uh, a very, very emotional. Uh, a couple of minutes, 21 minutes, if anybody have, wants to go on, on YouTube it. Uh, it's it's well worth it just to, to see the, the passion uh, and the commitment that he had. And, and as he said, of course, in his dissertation, he's a gun owner. He's not saying ban guns, but he says there's right. got to be more control over them. And uh, did, did that resonate in Washington? 
I don't know if it resonated in Washington. It certainly resonated among the American people. I mean, it's hard to hard to say, you know, it's hard to predict what many of the Republicans, in terms of gun control, what sways them. But I know that I heard from a number of my friends who saw it and cried looking at it. And as you said, if people haven't seen it, it's worth watching on YouTube. It's um, it's really riveting. And as you said, you know, Matthew McConaughey is a Texas guy, and he's a gun owner. And he didn't say, you know, we need to ban guns. He said, you know, I'm a gun owner and, and I believe in the right to own a gun. But this isn't, you know, we don't need weapons of war, you know, being bought by 18-year-olds. And it was, as you said, it was pretty riveting. Well, yeah, not only a Texas guy, but he's from Ovalde, where, where the massacre occurred. And it, 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 that kind of brings it home, I think, when you have those sorts of comments. And, you know, you mentioned the fact that his mother was a teacher at a school just a few blocks away from there. So he knew this community. And and he's a popular guy. I mean, a lot of people like Matthew McConaughey. And I, I just sometimes you need that somebody from outside uh, away from the political arena. I'm not so sure that's going to resonate with the Mitch McConnells or the Ted Cruz's. Uh, but as uh, Blumenthal said, you don't need all of those guys on side. You just you need 10. Uh, to try to get something right. done. So we, we, we sure hope that the, this may be the time. Uh, I mean, the other guys like crews that are in the pocket of the, the National Rifle Association, they're, they're not going to change their minds, but you'd like to think there's some other people that might. Uh, let's right. pivot I mean, if we could. Do, oh, go ahead. No, finish the, your thought on that you know, first. I, you know, there has been a, um, a draft proposal that is it was released yesterday by the senators, this bipartisan group of senators trying to come up with a bill. They're working on a bill that they hope will... Uh, be written up by the by the end of this week, and then voted on. The, the um, Congress goes on uh, break for uh, the month of July, so um, they're trying to get this done before they go on break and get it to the president's desk. You know, it doesn't. It's not as strong as the version passed by the House, in that it doesn't ban assault weapons. It doesn't um, raise the minimum age uh, for assault weapon buyers to 21. But it does have a number of things that people have been calling for. And it's at least the start since, as I said, nothing's been passed since 1994. Well, and the clock's ticking, right? I mean, with the midterm and elections the coming up in November, uh, you know, if they don't do anything uh, and, and if the Democrats lose the House and, you know, who knows what's going to happen then or could lose the Senate as well, you know, legislation can be reversed. I mean, there's all sorts of things. I mean, they put the sunset clause on the, the ban, assault weapons ban, and it ran out uh, because, the, you know, the Republicans controlled the House by then and just said, no, we're not going to renew it. So right. it's, it's it's pretty important stuff they're doing right now. And it's it, they don't have a whole lot of time here, do they? No, they don't. I mean, they, they will go on recess. And, you know, th- what's important about the timing is that, as as we've seen in history with this Congress, as more time expires from when the actual mass shootings occurred, they become less and less inclined to pass a bill. And so they, you know, the, the Democrats uh, pushing for this in the Senate, they want to get this thing passed in the next two weeks because, you know, they just don't want it to fade from people's memories with the horror of both Buffalo and Uvalde. As we mentioned, uh, the Capitol riot hearings continue today. Some remarkable uh, testimony last week, Jen, from, from, well, Bill Barr, the attorney general at the time, who, you know, clearly was a, a Trump acolyte, but uh, basically testified that he told Trump that all the stuff about, you know, election scams and everything was BS, although he didn't say BS, he filled in all the other letters, too. <laughs> yeah. And his own daughter, uh, Ivanka Trump, basically saying, yeah, we knew it was all a scam, and he was just, you know, but he was, what was he going to do? I mean, that's going to make for a very tense time around the dinner table on Father's Day, I would think, but uh, uh, there it is, right on tape. 
Uh, well, yeah, and the president already shot back at his daughter saying that she had checked out, that she was done, that she was already checked out of the White House when, you know, when she heard what Bill Barr said. And, you know, he it was not a very complimentary comment that he made about her, a statement that he made about her. But Bill Barr did say, you know, I was the attorney general and the Department of Justice investigated and we didn't find widespread fraud that would overturn this election. We didn't find it, no, nor did the FBI, nor did the Department of Homeland Security, nor did the judges in various states. And he kept telling the president and telling the president and the president didn't listen. Uh, and I'm sure we're going to hear some other rather enlightening testimony as well. Where's this going to go? I mean, you, you talk to your folks there on, on the hill in the beltway there. Uh, I mean, this is a guy who's been impeached twice, and it, it just kind of rolled right off his back both times. Uh, you know, and this committee, as you've been reporting, doesn't really have the authority to do anything. I mean, they're going to gather information, but it's really going to be up to, I guess, Merrick Garland to, to actually make a decision as to whether or not they're going to pursue charges on this. And you just don't know at this stage, do you? No. I mean, the, the committee members have made it very clear that this Capitol riot was not a spontaneous thing, that this was fueled by President, former President Trump um, and people like Bill Stepien, who is, I'll, I'll get into that in a minute, um, who was his campaign manager who started this whole Stop the Steal campaign, and that this riot was fueled by them and it was premeditated. And so the question is, did the president Ill- take uh, criminal action to try to overturn an election? And that's what the committee is trying to prove. And they want the Attorney General Merrick Garland to take a look at this in the Department of Justice to potentially file charges against the former president of the United States, which is unprecedented. Whether or not that will happen, you know, this is a guy who's been sued thousands of times in his life, and nothing seems to stick. And so do I do I think Merrick Garland would take that step? I don't know. Would he take that step before the midterm elections? I I have my doubts. Well, because I think there was a great deal of anticipation about the investigations going on in the Southern District of New York, of course, about Trump, the, the, the businessman, uh, not so much about Trump, the, the the president guy, although there's something about fundraising there, too. Uh, but that died when Cy Vance Jr. left the job. Uh, they basically said, we're not going to do it. Uh, which I think shocked an awful lot of people after all the work that had been put into that. And you'd like to think that this is all going to go for something here, as opposed to simply saying, well, that was good to know. Can we move on? Right. I mean, that that's what the the attorney general has to look at. Is there enough of a case that he can actually win, rather than, you know, just something that's going to be a lot of noise and further anger the right of this country? And so, you know, Merrick Garland is in a tough position as I said, this would be unprecedented, and um, you know it, it's it's a huge question mark whether or not he's going to do it. Adam Schiff, uh, who's a committee member, and others are pushing him to take a hard look on whether criminal charges could be filed. But this is a you know it's a it would be a historic step. Now we were supposed to hear live from Bill Stepien, who was the Trump 2020 campaign manager. Um, but his wife went in labor, went into labor this morning. And so they're going to play his subpoenaed uh, videotape testimony at today's hearing. Um, and so it, it'll be interesting to see what he said, because he was the one who orchestrated the Stop the Steal disinformation campaign, which basically was emails, letters, um, interviews on TV, um, trying to convince the American public that the election was stolen from Donald Trump and, and whether or not he says that this was 
not orchestrated by him, but rather the former president of the United States. That's what I think the American people wants to know. The committee wants to get out there. Um, and as I said, it won't be live testimony, but it will be videotaped testimony uh, from several months ago that Bill Stepien gave. It's kind of history repeating itself, as I heard the, what was supposed to happen today. Step in as the uh, the campaign manager. Kind of reminded me of the Watergate thing, quite frankly, with the Nixon, uh, where they, they the defense tried to ba- basically say it wasn't the president. It was Holloman and Ehrlichman, the two chiefs of staff. They're the guys that organized all this stuff. Right. Uh, you know, he found out about it down the fact, and that seems to be maybe what they're trying to insinuate here, too. Uh, but who knows uh, with what's going to happen. And we don't know at this point what kind of uh, step in gave uh, previously, do we? No, we don't know. And, and let's be clear, there, you know, history has shown there's nobody that Donald Trump won't throw under the bus. And that will include yeah, Bill Stepien if it comes to that. Uh, but we don't know. Um, and as I said, I mean, it was just so weird this morning. You know, we've been promoting that he's the next guy up. And then you know, we get this, you know, we get these hot notes saying, you know, he's not going to testify live and, you know, family emergency, personal causes. And then it turns out his wife's in labor. So, he has a good excuse not to show up, but it was just a one more bizarre thing that happens down here in Washington. Exactly. Speaking of bizarre things, nice segue, Jennifer. Uh, Rudy Giuliani, <laughs> who was the jester, of course, in this whole you know farce, uh, uh, is is in hot water again with another legal agency, the Office of Disciplinary Counsel. Uh, uh, that's the, uh, this is D.C., by the way, where it's, it's basically calling on him to uh, justify uh, some of his behaviors and uh, professional ethics charges. Uh, it's, it's not the first time he's got a slap on the wrist for his behavior, and uh, he, of course, was disbarred in one section of the country already. A, a guy who was committed to, as you say, continuing this lie uh, about the, the great steal and, and obviously getting himself into trouble uh, in a situation like that. And, and you know, getting disbarred is, is bad. I'm not trying to, you know, minimize that uh and answering to this committee is 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 serious stuff as well but uh what happens with giuliani i mean trump is you know he loved him and then he made fun of him off and on like this and uh, is is he going to take a part of the fall for this whole thing oh definitely i mean his fall has been tremendous not only has he been has he been disbarred in new york he's been disbarred in washington dc and you know the things that that he did after the election have made him you know, almost a laughing stock in, in many legal circles. So, I mean, his star has fallen so far, and it'll be, you know, I, nothing would surprise me if, you know, these ethics charges will stick, and I'm, I'm sure others will be will be filed because, he, you know, he was trying to overturn the election in Pennsylvania, in Arizona, various other states, you know, with these crazy conspiracy theories. And so I, I just don't know what happened to Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> Well, and it's serious, and it, from that standpoint, I mean, because you know, when you take a, uh, when you become a lawyer, you take an oath to tell the truth, uh, and and right. if you break that oath and you start lying, and it's clearly he did, uh, there can be some legal, some huge legal ramifications. Quite aside from being disbarred, uh, so his uh, his journey into the hot waters is probably not over yet. There's probably more to come on that. Uh, is there a timeline, Jen? I know we're almost out of time here, but I mean, it, with, with the hearings today. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, you know, they're going to take a, a, some time off over the summer holidays, uh, and that's going to be out of people's minds by then, too. Are they going to try to get a report on this sooner than later uh, so that uh, somebody, including Merritt Garland, will have to make some determination? Uh, I don't think if they're going to issue a final report, it'll be out before they go on the July recess. Um, they're going to wrap up the hearings before the July recess. But um, I think at that point, they're going to present, they presented their case. And they're going to put it into the hands of the attorney general. 
And, you know, that is, that's something that w- that's going to take, I mean, the attorney general we're, we're hearing and the department of justice is already investigating these claims, but whether or not they can turn around and either announce charges or announce they won't be um, issuing any charges, it, you know, it, it always takes several months and there's always the midterm election wild card and whether or not you, you just want to anger people who, you know, want that to be behind the country and maybe are on the fence of whether or not to support a Republican or a Democrat. You know, there's a, there's a lot of balls in the air on this one. Oh, absolutely there are. And, and, and you've already heard some of the, uh, the stuff that's going to be coming up right now. Some of the, uh, shall we say, uh, Trump supporters, and there are still quite a few of them, uh, suggesting that Merrick Garland is just doing this as a witch hunt because he got passed over uh, for the Supreme yep. Court position. And so on and on it goes. I guess the, the rhetoric is uh, going to be knee-deep, I guess, for a while. Oh, yeah. It's just like its own weird soap opera down here. I mean, I, that, you just put up, you know, you just raised a great, great point that Merrick Garland was passed over with the Supreme Court for a Supreme Court position. And so now he's the attorney general under Joe Biden. And now he's faced with the unprecedented task of possibly filing criminal charges against a former president. So it's it's quite a story. It is. It is. Well, we'll uh, be watching for your reporting on this to try to make some sense of it as usual. Jennifer, thanks so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Bill. Nice talking with you. Take care. Jennifer Johnson, who, of course, is the global news reporter down in the uh, U.S. Capitol, uh, to let us know what's going on, considering those hearings and, of course, the Rudy Giuliani situation, too. It's uh, somewhat of a farce, but uh, it's got to be played out. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.